We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. Thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Terry McDougall, executive coach and author of Winning Network, Career Happiness and Success on Your Own Terms. Terry coaches executives who have been exactly where she was just a few years ago, successful but not satisfied. As a head of marketing in a national bank, she started to think about doing something else. She always liked helping others figure things out. So she decided to get a coaching certification and now helps executives get clarity, shift their mindset, and find balance. Aspiring entrepreneurs, as well as anyone climbing the corporate ladder, can benefit from Terry's insight and approach. Terry describes how, after she graduated from college, she was given the book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Which she takes two key questions away from that you need to ask yourself. What do I like to do? And what am I good at? She starts her coaching by helping her clients gain clarity on their goals, shifting to a positive mindset, and then taking action. One of the main challenges she often sees is the reluctance by high achievers to delegate and put systems into place so their staff can take over some of their work. While it might seem faster or somehow better to take care of business themselves, executives, as well as entrepreneurs, need to eventually find ways to delegate tasks and implement systems that allow them to take on new challenges and grow themselves and their company. Letting go of these perfectionist tendencies often one important shift your clients need to make. But once you move from being stuck with what's in front of you and step back to take a look from a different perspective, you find opportunities and options you didn't realize were there. Now, let's get better together. Terry McDougall, welcome to the podcast. 
Jerry, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you are quite welcome. It is actually super interesting. I know maybe just for me, uh, but you are the first guest in my brand new apartment um, because uh, I actually had a fire in my last apartment oh, last no. week. <laughs> so uh, I apologize in advance for the echoey stuff. I'm still moving in, but uh, a lot of things to be grateful for. Um, one, I mean, talking to you about career and like how people that are executives can, you know, be have more fulfillment and just general entrepreneurship stuff, but also the fact that smoke detectors work. So make sure everyone yes, checks their smoke yes. Make sure everyone checks their smoke detectors. Um, but before we talk about what you do at your, uh, your coaching business and then your book as well, I would love to hear how you got to do what you're doing today. Oh my gosh. Like, well, how much time do we have, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is the beautiful thing about like strategic communications and uh, being in PR and marketing. I'm like, well, there's the short, the medium and the long. <laughs> and yeah, it's up to yeah. you to figure out how we're going to do it. But yeah, I'll know. try to hit the high notes. Yeah, let's um, hit the high notes. The, the nickel funny, tour, like, as I like to say. It, yeah, nickel. it's funny um, because... As people, more people have asked me this question, I realize that the root of what I do now goes back a lot further than what I initially thought. I'm the oldest of four girls, so I'm the big sister. And I think that helping people find better ways was just part of being a big sister, right? When you learn things and then you're teaching it to other people or helping other people find easier ways, that was just sort of part of who I am. And it, it repeated itself many times through my life. I mean, when I was in school, if I got a concept, I was always really happy and satisfied, you know, felt fulfilled to help other people figure things out. And when I got out of college, I would, you know, I figured out how to do my resume. I was helping other people do that. Um, but there's, when I first got out of college, my boyfriend's mom gave me the book, What Color Is Your Parachute? And, um, she told me to read that book and do the exercises before I started looking for a job, which was smart. Um, but it wasn't anything that had ever occurred to me to do any kind of introspection before I went out and got a job. I just wanted to get a job, making money. And what I got out of that book is that you really should look at yourself and say, what do I like to do? And what am I good at? Start there, start with yourself and then look into the marketplace and say, where can I find a place where I can trade my, my talents and my passions for money. Um, and that got me started. I started working in a publishing company and ad sales department and as, as an assistant to salespeople. And then that sort of got me on the path to marketing. So I did that for 30 years. And I eventually rose to head marketing for several businesses at a national bank. And I, I was at that company uh, the last company for uh, 12 years, I actually worked at two big banks for 21 years in total, but, um, you know, at a executive level for 12 years at this one company. And over the course of that time, uh, you know, I enjoyed probably 10 out of the 12 years <laughs> there. And the, the last two years, it was mainly because I was asked to take on a role that I never wanted and that I didn't apply for. I was sort of voluntold that I was going to do this job and it never was a great fit. And, you know, my satisfaction just started waning and it really got me looking at myself and saying, you know, what do you want to do? Right. Like, because I, I looked around that company, and I just didn't see 
that there were other opportunities that appealed to me. I interviewed for other jobs, but it really kind of maybe in some ways became sort of a bit of an existential crisis for me. (laughs) And I started really thinking uh, broader. And I kind of went back to that advice that I got from What Color Is Your Parachute, uh, the book that I was given. um, And I thought, what am I good at? And what do I like to do? And as a marketing leader, I always felt like it was totally worthwhile to invest and working with my staff to to mentor and to coach them. And I got a lot of enjoyment out of it. And it paid dividends for me as a leader and for the people I was working with and for the company. Um, and so I and I had actually hired coaches a couple times in my career when I'd sort of hit, um, you know, hit walls or hurdles that I couldn't figure out how to get over. And so I kind of knew what the profession was about. And I believed in it because it, it really worked for me. And so I started thinking about, you know, what if I what if I left, I was kind of burnt out in that role and thought, well, what if I like just took a sabbatical and got uh, a coaching certification? And that's what my plan was initially was just to sort of take a sabbatical, take some time off, detox from being in that job I didn't like um, for, for years and, you know, kind of rediscover myself. And I thought I'll get this coaching certification, I'll get another job. And, and then as I get closer to retirement, maybe I'll do this full time. But you know, um, once I was in the coaching program and I was meeting all these sort of like-minded individuals, many of whom already had their own businesses or were thinking about starting them, I always say like the entrepreneurial spirit is contagious, um, at least for, for people like me anyway, because I always sort of, even within the corporate environment was sort of entrepreneurial. You know, I, I a lot of times worked in areas where things were kind of new and they were just like, OK, there's the jungle. Here's a machete. Cut your way to the center. <laughs> tell us what's there and come back. Right. That was and good. And luck. I love that. Yeah. Good that, luck. Yeah, exactly. And I, that never that never really bothered me. I loved that kind of open ended, you know, hey, what's out there? You know, where are the opportunities? And so that was exciting to me. Um, so. I left that job in 2017. Um, pretty much by the time, uh, by the end of the year, I decided that I was going to not get another job, uh, at least for the time being. You know, I was going to make a go of it, of, of uh, starting my own business. And I haven't really looked back. You know, it's four, four and a half years later, and I'm still out here doing that thing. It's good. Wow. So you're sort of a. Uh you know, later stage entrepreneur, as I like to say, kind of. It, it's been dormant in me and it's come oh. out a couple times. I, oh. I quit my more. job when I was 29 to go back to business school full time. I got an MBA uh, when I was 29 and I did uh, run my own freelance graphic design uh, practice at that time. You know, it wasn't it wasn't full on, but it definitely helped me, uh, you know, pay for m- my schooling. You know, it back then I, I made $35 an hour doing graphic design in the mid nineties, which was a lot more than, you know, if I worked oh, yeah. uh, for like five bucks an hour in the library, right? <laughs> <laughs> a lot more. Yeah, so sure. I've done it. I've done it. But uh, um, anyway. So it had the spark early on. Yeah, I had the spark. Of... I had the spark. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, sometimes it's interesting because I, I hear a lot of people that always want to give it a go, but then 
the career gets in the way, family, you know, like obligation, right? And people have this sense of stability and safety with corporate job or whatever, which, you know, is there's a lot of pluses and minuses to that. Yeah. I always found that my, you know, I'm I'm an entrepreneur because I'm unemployable, (laughs) as I always like to say. I've heard that from other people too. That's funny. And and not not in the sense that I'm not a team player, not in the sense that I can't work with clients because I have clients in my own business. But the political aspect of big corporations just drive me insane. I'm like, we spend half our time on the politics. Right. And the other half trying to figure out like what to do. And okay, maybe the time in between at night to actually do something. And that just for whatever reason struck me as like, this is not, this is not for me. So totally frustrating. And I agree with you. That's actually, I, I talk a lot about the whole political you know, that's why I call I called my book winning the game of work, right? Because yeah, it's, it's a game. It's a game. It's absolutely and game. It's that you have to be strategic about how you um, navigate the waters there, you know. And and so many people go in really naively thinking that, like, hey, I'll I'll just show up and do a good job and I'll get promoted. And that doesn't work. That that's a good way to get stuck in a so, in a role. <laughs> absolute full disclosure. Got my right hand up in the air. If I had a Bible, I'd swear on it. This is what happened to me in a lot of my corporate jobs because I, I drank the Kool Aid of, oh, do do a good job. You know, there's no politics here. <laughs> I remember. There's, I remember working. If there's a more than those. two people. There's politics. Yeah, and if and if you're and if you're Hungarian, if there's more than one, <laughs> that's what they always <laughs> used to say. Because you know, Hungary's been conquered so many times that it does, yeah. they're schizophrenic <laughs> with themselves. I love the Hungarians. Don't get me wrong, but it, it's a great uh, great metaphor for the challenges of politicking and really the art and skill of it. And I know you do a lot of executive coaching now um, in your book, you know, winning the game of work, which is a great title. I can't wait to read it. I just actually picked it up this morning. I'm curious in your practice as a coach, helping executives. And I know it's mindset. And I think you talk about work-life balance and you have a great line. What was the line you use about how, how you help people? Oh, well, I, I talk about uh, working with high achievers who are successful, but not satisfied. Yes. And, you know, what I mean by that is that they are paying a higher price than is necessary for the success that they have. You know, like a lot of times people, you know, you look at them from the outside or on paper and you're like, wow, you know, look at that title, look at the company, you know, look at the salary, like they've got it made. And then they come to me and they're showing me the high, high price that they're paying for that quote unquote success. Lots of stress, lots of anxiety, health problems, relationship problems. And I'm like, ugh, you know, is it worth it? Is that really success if you're paying that price that, you know, you can't even enjoy the benefits of what you're working for? And, you know, my premise is that you can learn to balance, uh, happiness with success, with that, you know, those exterior um, uh, trappings of success, you can balance it. But you have to play the game a different way. You know, you have to first of all, realize it is a game. And you have to, you know, learn the rules, you have to constantly be trying to improve yourself, just like any professional athlete would, you know, they don't, like, go into it and say, well, you know, I've got good hand-eye or 
<clears throat> coordination. And when I was in Little League, I could hit the ball far, right? Like they keep working at it constantly because obviously the game keeps evolving, but there's a lot more to it than just, you know, what it appears to be on the, on the surface. Yeah. I mean, I like the uh, athlete metaphor because, you know, I do work with professional athletes and, you know, their dedication to their craft and, you know, time is not on their side, right? Every year you get a little older and a little slower. And even if you're like top of your game and the clients I work with are typically in the NFL, there's a point where you got to start working smarter rather than harder. And Uh, yeah, absolutely. Even then it it, it can be a challenge. And I think even, even for entrepreneurs, especially, you know, venture funded entrepreneurs are probably scaling, which is always the biggest Mm -hmm. challenge, you know, like Mm -hmm. you you start your little company, it's all about execution and getting customers. And then as you grow and scale, you have some of these executive problems, which a lot of them are like, ah, don't, I didn't sign up for this. So what are some of those techniques that you teach your clients about playing the political game, you know, working harder, sorry, smarter rather than harder? I still need more coffee yeah. this morning. <laughs> yeah, what what yeah, are some no, of those no, things? Okay. Yeah. Gosh, um, well, you know, interesting that you talk about uh, the startups because I actually coach a lot of people who work for startups. And, you know, some of the issues that I see is that it gets to a point you know, I, I've worked with people that, you know, they joined a company when there were 20 people and, you know, two years ago, and now it's like 500 people, right? And it's such, so different. And the things that are required when, you know, you're a scrappy startup bootstrapping it is very, very different from when the company grows to that size where you can't get everybody who works there in one room. Um, yeah, is what Bezos or some of those tech guys said. Two pizzas can't feed the team. And now it's yeah, like, okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, it gets to a point where, and I see this even with people that work in large corporate, that they've gotten, they've been successful through their own hard work and understanding their own talents and knowing that they can rely on themselves. And at some point, they need to rise above that and start looking for the leverage points, right? Um I see it a lot with people who have been promoted, whether it's from a team lead to, you know, a director or something like that, where they've, you know, they're a manager of managers um, that a lot of times if they're an individual contributor or they're managing a small team, if there's any issues, they can just jump in and rely on their own talent and intelligence to solve the problem. But when you get to a higher level, you need to start developing people under you. You need to, you know, delegate, you need to build systems. You need to uh, be smarter about prioritization. Um, You need to put a structure in place. So it's, you know, the weight of what's going on around you is not on your shoulders, Mm. right? That you can actually step out and the business will continue to run, whether it's a department or whether it's, uh, you know, your own, your own business. And, you know, that's why I think a lot of times you see in startups that, you know, that brilliant founder is not the person who goes on to be the CEO once, you know, after the IPO, right? Or, because or they, even they, at series A or series B. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They're, you know, they're creative and they're, you know, they have this brilliant idea, but they don't, really understand or where they don't have an interest, like they don't get fulfillment well, out a, of running the, the actual business. It's an absolute brilliant point because there is a different skill set 
and both are very valuable. That's the reason why you see a lot of startups with a CEO and a COO. And you're like, you're a seed stage startup. Why do you have a COO? And it's Mm -hmm. either like, there's one of two reasons, either the CEO can't do it all, or Mm -hmm. they had to flip a coin to figure out who was going to be CEO and who was going to be the co-founder. Right. And this happened with (laughs) the startup I was at me and Mm -hmm. my co-founder, we flipped a coin. He was CEO. I was COO. I mean, metaphorically, I mean, he was the Mm -hmm. more senior person anyway, but yeah, what gets you there might not get you to the next step. And I think absolutely, I say that all the time. You know, what yeah. got you here is not going to get you there. Um, and what I see a lot of times with, you know, I mean, I am so lucky to be able to work with super smart people. You know, that's why I say I work with people who are successful but not satisfied. They're well educated, they're hardworking, they're intelligent. Um, but what they tend to do is that if they hit a hurdle or, you know, they can't get over a hurdle or they hit a wall is they will go faster. They'll double down. They'll take on more, you know, because that's what got them there. Yeah, Like that drive, that's what got them there. But if you've hit a brick wall and you're hit, you know, and you've, you've tried to push through it a couple of times, it does not make sense to keep banging your head against that wall. You know, I always tell people like, don't, zoom in, zoom out, step back. When you have tried something a a number of times, step back. And this is also sort of where the, you know, the game uh, analogy comes in is I I use this analogy a lot uh, with my clients. I I really don't know anything about rugby, but I always see those scrums, right? That's what I know about rugby is like both teams are like on top of the ball and they're smashing each other. struggling. (laughs) And, and uh, you know, that, that's a lot of energy that's expended there. Right. And I'm always kind of like, you know, like zoom out, like maybe you can see another way Mm. to get what you want rather than like just grinding it out, doing the same thing that you've always done. Like maybe step back and say, Oh, I see. And I, this happens a lot with, you know, when I'm working with people in coaching environments is that, you know, they, um, they're so close to the problem or the the challenge that they can't see the options that they have. And very often they, you know, they're in these like sort of what I call catabolic levels of energy, which means that, you know, they're, they're under a lot of stress. They, a lot of times maybe are in this mindset of like, you know, avoidance or defensiveness, you know, they're just angry about the situation or they're feeling like a victim or at best, they're just tolerating it. They're like, uh, you know, this is, I guess this is the best it's going to get. Right. And there's not, that's really like looking at the world through a pinhole when you're in that mindset, right. Cause you're just like, there's nothing we can do about it. I have to I ha- either have to like come in and be, you know, angry and defensive, or I have to, you know, there's nothing I can do. I feel like a victim, or I just have to slog through this bit by bit. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, what if you shifted your mindset to believe that you actually had more power over this situation? It really is like shifting from looking at the, um, the situation you're in through a pinhole, which all you can see is the threat or the, the pain point to like, peeling back the blinders and realizing like, oh, like I actually have a lot more options for things that I can do. Um, You know, like I'll just give you an example that sometimes I'm working with people and they'll say, well, they said we can't do this. 
you know, and you're like, well, who's they and why not? And what if <laughs> you tried something, right? right? Like, you I know, mean, what's, what's the happen? downside? Yeah. Like, right. I what's always say happen? that to, to some people, like they get all freaked out about missing some arbitrary deadline or like I, the corporate, the thing that would drive me crazy is these quarterly earnings, which are completely made up in an absolute, right. absolute show, dog and pony show. It's like, yeah. how can you get within a penny every time? Or, you know, all they cared about was like the two quarters out mentality. So no one would take a risk mm-hmm. or challenge. And I would yeah. sit there and people would be like, we got to hit the deadline. We got to hit the deadline. And I go, I, yeah. I see why in one sense. Right. But I mean, what's really going to happen if we don't? No one's right. shooting at right. us. No, we're not going to die. It's a reversible decision. But the, the, the thing that was, it was the arbitrariness of what you just said, like, well, they say mm-hmm. we can't do that. Well, yeah. Really? You know, and I yeah. think the other thing that's interesting is especially when you're a founder of a startup technical, which is a lot of the folks I work with, or they're very highly skilled in some area and the mm-hmm. PhD tech person. Yeah, sure. It, they tend to do exactly what you just mentioned. They're just going to keep on doing the tactical thing that they've always done. I'm just going to mm-hmm. work harder through it to solve a problem. Yeah. When the working harder part, the tactics are not what you need to work on. It's the strategy. No like yeah. the layer above. And then even, even more important, which a lot of people miss is the grand strategy. Yes, absolutely. It's the, it's the level above the level <clears throat> because yes. to your point, right. I love the I love the rugby analogy. So let's say you're in a scrum. <laughs> Usually what happens is all that energy is to get the ball. So the guy can spin out <laughs> and get yeah. away from yeah. the block. So it's yeah. the perfect enough. If you look at it from the top, it's like, wow, these people fight. Oh, and then the guy runs away, right? He's like, yeah, he gets mm-hmm. away from the people that are going to kill him mm-hmm. or smash him or whatever. I mean, it's a such an interesting thing. I mean, how do you, how do you like either, how do you get people to recognize that? How do you get them to change their mindset? Because honestly, I've had this problem personally. Like, yeah, sure. It's like, I just had such a hard, I mean, even in my business now, which, you know, I, I have a small, you know, boutique PR marketing firm, you know, I struggle with this delegation piece. I struggle with, I mean, I'm a good systems person, so I understand systems, but because I've got an engineering degree and, and a background in it, but how do you get that through someone's head? How do you just say like, look, man, beating your head against the wall is not going to work. Mm-hmm. You're just going to get bloody and it's really going to hurt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's um, helping them, first of all, become aware of what they're doing because, and I mean, listen, I coach people who are me and were me, right? So I understand this from the inside out because I've had to learn a lot of these lessons yeah. and I'm still learning a lot of these lessons, including the delegation one. Yeah, um, But, you know, we know we can rely on ourselves, right? Like if we're very, very um, adept at, you know, and usually you are, if you've moved your way up, you, you know how to do the thing, whatever it is. Um, one of the things I've noticed with people that are, you know, successful is a lot of times they don't understand what their talents are, or they don't really know how they do what they do. And so I think that uh, there's two things that stand in the way of them delegating. One is that they know they can rely on themselves, Mm. right? So it's a trust issue. They're Mm. not sure if they can rely on somebody else. Right. right. Um, This, the second thing is that it's going to require some energy for them to even figure out how to explain to somebody what they do. 
Mm. And then I guess the third thing is, and I hear this all the time, it's just quicker for me to do it, right? <laughs> How do you know I say that? Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody says it. Everyone says It's just quicker that. for me to do it. Right. Um, but the, the thing with that kind of thinking is that you can only, you yourself and your organization can only grow as quickly as the people underneath of you grow. That's so true. You know, so like you're rising as they rise, because if you're saddled with, you know, oh, I have to do the spreadsheets or I have to do blah, 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 whatever it is, um, that means you're not doing something that's higher value work that only you can do. Yes. You know, and I've, Very good I've had people Very good you know, say, um, say things like, you know, well, it take you know, I've, I've, I've given this to my assistant before and it takes her like three times as long for her to do it than it does for me. And I'm like, well, she only gets paid a quarter of what you get paid. <laughs> so you're ahead so, of the game. <laughs> right. So it, it, it's, it doesn't matter, you know, no, and besides true. that, you're, you have to look at the opportunity cost of mm. it. Like, what are you not doing mm. when you're doing something that could be delegated to someone else? Mm. Um, you know, totally. you're not doing, you know, you're talking about the grand vision things. You're not innovating. You're not negotiating. You're not selling right? You're not yeah. coming up with the great next new idea for your next product. Yeah. Right. No, so um, true. So true. I mean, I, I, I had the same problem when I was doing the show notes for this podcast. Mm -hmm. I used to do them all myself. And then I found Allison and I literally just send her the, the recording and, I, and she takes care of it and she does a way better job than I do. But it took me the better part of 25 episodes roughly mm -hmm. to uh, actually like delegate that because of course it costs me some money. I have to pay her and she does great work. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I thought in my mind was I tried to answer the question you just said, it's like, what can I only do? Like, yeah. what am I the only person that can do? Well, the only, I'm the only person that can host my show. Right. <laughs> so I should spend right. more time hosting my show, but pretty much everything else, like, show notes. I mean, I'm even trying to work on having people do a lot of the backend stuff. I have to, you know, read, read the notes and do the intro, but pretty much that's it. Right. The rest of it, yeah. I try to automate, but it's so powerful because now that used to stress me out doing these show notes. Sure. <laughs> and I'm like, thanks be to God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that now yeah. She does it and she does a great yeah. job. I mean, the reason why the show is so so great. And with those notes and the insights and all that is because it's just, it's a different perspective too, which I think is a great other thing that is powerful for me. If you can, you have to learn how to do something, you have to do it, then you have to teach it to someone else. The teaching part is that you really understand it. And I think to your point about, oh, well, I can do it three times faster than my assistant. Well, you probably haven't trained her, right? Him or her, right? Because eventually they should be able to do it better than you. Yeah. Because whatever absolutely. that thing is, if you can delegate it, it should they should own it, right? And I, I find it I find it fascinating when companies try to scale, especially startups. And what I specialize in is when you know startup has product market fit and they're trying to go to market and launch, like they're trying to scale what they're doing. And it's this common thing called the trough of sorrow, right? <laughs> it's where it's where products go to die. But mm -hmm. part of the reason why products die in the trough of sorrow is because of the transition between creator and executor. Mm -hmm. And they're a very different skill set. And part of crossing mm -hmm. that chasm 
you know, so to speak, is switching the mindset from I can do everything myself to I'm going to hire people to help me scale my vision and I need to step back and, you know, command from afar, so to speak. So yeah, I, I'm yeah. curious if that is sort of, do you see people's success and failure or burnout or like leaving industry altogether? Is it that transition between the doer and the thinker? I, I'd say it's, Yeah. I mean, do you have yeah. a better term for it? Well, no, but I mean, I do think about that as, as a transition. And I think a lot of times, you know, when people are used to being successful, like a lot of times they forget what it was like when they were first learning, you know? And so it, and I also think, I mean, this is one of the things I, I found when I was doing secondary research for my book is that high achievers are often addicted to external validation. And so in other words, they're sort of, you know, they're used to success. They're used to getting Fame, accolades fortune, for being prestige, the money. Yeah. You know, the, and it honestly cool. goes back to, you know, mommy and daddy smiling at you when you did something that they wanted you to do or getting that gold star on your paper <laughs> in first grade. Oh, kindergarten you know? gold stars. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Grade, you yeah. know, the little check plus the little smiley face at Yay. the top of your paper, right? You get a jelly that bean. <laughs> when we got that positive reinforcement, we, uh, we did more and more of what we needed to do to get that. And what that um, means is that we were disconnecting from, you know, maybe our inner wisdom <clears throat> around, mm. around things. And I think I see it so often and it's, I have it too, is this like, you know, perfectionistic tendency, right? Cause mm. you're not going to get the, you know, the A if you don't get a hundred percent. Right. And so what if you only get, you know, a 90 and you get a B, right? Oh my gosh. Right. And the so for those of us that are addicted to that, we're like out of my way. I know how to do this perfectly. <laughs> right. And we need to have tolerance to allow other people to go through that learning curve um, and to, and to persevere through something that many of us, like when we're older, we've forgotten what it's like when we're still learning, right? I, I'm actually working with a client right now. And she made a, she's a business owner, and she made a decision to outsource manufacturing. She she used to do it sort of like in a studio environment. And she had, you know, she could see her products being manufactured in her studio. And mm. she, you know, she's had her business for 20 years. And um, you know, she's sort of the creative visionary for her business. And she made a decision that she wanted to focus on that because that is her zone of genius. Mm -hmm. And she uh, is going through this process where she picked an outsource, you know, uh, contract manufacturer. They haven't been doing a good job. And mm -hmm. she, I, I had a session with her this week and she was like, I don't know, did I make the wrong decision? And should I just bring it back in house? And I was like, remember why you're doing this. Yeah. You know, that was not, you thought long and hard about that. That is a very valid decision that you made. And you're just in the middle of this transition. Like, keep going. There are companies out there that can fulfill on, you know, the level of quality that you want. You're like, you learned your lesson. You've never hired a contract um, yeah. manufacturer before. So, you know, you didn't know what to look for, you know, you, you made some mistakes, but 
now you know, yeah. right? And, no, no, and you're so learning true. things. So keep going. Don't go back, right? And I think that that can be a real tendency. Like there's, um, I love this uh, saying, when you're going through hell, keep going, <laughs> right? Like get yeah. to the other side of it. Yeah, Don't yeah, just yeah, hang yeah. out or backtrack and have to go through it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah glutton for punishment in that case. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so true. I mean, I think... I think a lot of people do, I think they stop too soon when it comes to those sort of things because they, they feel a little bit of friction. It's never going to go well. It's never going to go right the first time. It never does. I mean, mm-hmm. full stop. Every time I've ever tried to do it, there's always some hiccups. There's always some challenges and struggles. And you have to teach, like got to teach people what you do. And the manufacturing one's a great example because pretty much all the startups I've been at had some sort of manufacturing component where we had to outsource manufacturing, mm-hmm. just too complicated sure. to do. And I can tell you time and time again, you know, my experience in bringing up a manufacturing line, there was always something that we missed. We made some assumption. We didn't mm-hmm. write down some spec. We had to work right. through it. It always took longer than we thought. The quality sure. was always not as good, but in the end, the quality always got better. In fact, exceeded what we could do in-house, even the times we could do stuff in-house because- when you have a process and you work on your, your process and you really refine it, you know, the reproducibility of that is key. Um, right. You can scale, you can scale, scale yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so do you have a framework or a methodology that you adhere to, or is it just sort of like, Hey, I've got all this experience and it's just, well, no, uh, I mean, my, the, the, the coaching framework yeah. that I, that I use is that, you know, I start with helping clients get clarity on their goals, because a lot of times when they first come to me, they're just, they just have some, you know, dissatisfaction or some pain or some issue. And a lot of times they're really focused on, you know, they're venting about work and their boss or their, you know, whatever, right, right, they've got something that doesn't feel right, right. And so they're venting on that. And what I try to help people do is flip it and say, okay, I'm hearing a lot about what you don't want. And what, you know, is is painful right now. Let's flip that. Like, what would you like your situation to look like? I mean, this is about getting clarity on a positive goal, right? Because, you know, when people are sort of like, venting about their situation, that's like they're looking over their shoulder at behind them, right? And you can't get to where you want to go by looking behind you, right? That's that's yeah. how people Good like, you know, point. jump out of the fire or frying pan into the fire, right? Where they're like, oh, I, I just got another job offer. I hate this job. I'm going to take this other job, right? I'm going to bounce. They're, yeah. gonna bounce, they're not yeah. even looking to where they're going. So you've got to really get clear on the goal and then uh, start thinking about like, okay, if I'm here and that's the goal, what does the roadmap look like to get from where I am to where I want to go? And most times when we're going through that process of building the roadmap, we will, we will identify um, skill gaps, right? Where they'll be like, Oh, that means I'm going to have to network. And I don't really like networking. I feel uncomfortable (laughs) with that. Or I don't, I don't like having those, you know, difficult conversations or delegating feels weird, right? right? Like whatever it is, we will focus on like, okay, well, what's at the root of this? What would happen if you tried? What's one little thing that you can do? Like just to start building the muscle so that they gain confidence yeah. and that they start to the believe practice. like, oh, 
I reached out to somebody and had a networking conversation. It was actually fun. Right. And then they're like, oh, okay, now I think I can do this. Um, And then, (laughs) um, you know, I mean, the coaching gives them a safe place to talk about these things. Right. Because a lot of times, you know, they may have friends or family or I've worked with a lot of people who are like, I, I feel so good that I actually have somebody that I can talk to about this because I'm the leader of my department. I can't talk to anybody about these issues, right? It's just yeah. either I can't because it's an HR issue or it would, I'd be vulnerable, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it gives them like a safe place uh, to talk about it. And then probably as important as getting clarity on the goal is the last thing. And it's really not the last thing. It's one of the first things, but it's uh, shifting to that mindset to believe that that goal that you have for yourself is possible. Because the just human condition is that we like to protect ourselves, right? That we will, um, you know, people will say a lot of times people are like, oh, you know, I really I'm tired of this role or this job or whatever, but I can't really do anything about it because nobody will hire somebody who's 50 or they only promote people of this type or whatever, right? You know, they they tell themselves things to protect themselves from disappointment. And if you don't believe that the thing that you want is possible, it is not possible. Now, if you do believe that it's possible, that there's some possibility for it to happen, it might not happen, but it definitely won't happen if you don't shift your mindset to believe that there's a possibility. And so we shift to that. And one of the cool things is that actually a lot of times people will get something better than what they wanted when they shift to the possibility of, yeah, maybe, maybe this could happen. Right. And of course, like goal mindset and action, you have to take action. Right. Like I'm, you know, we hear people talking about manifesting all the time (laughs) and like, you can't really manifest stuff unless you take action. Right. But I do, I've seen really, like sometimes I've been amazed at stuff that's happened with my clients when they've done these things, like what's the goal, you know, what, what are steps you can take? Can we even a little bit shift to believe that maybe this is possible now take some action. Um, Some amazing things have happened in really, really short periods of time. I mean, even where people call me and they're like, I just got a job offer. I just had coffee with somebody. I got a job offer and it's great. It's a great job offer. And I'm like, wow, like sometimes I can't promise this. I wish I could promise it, but I've seen it happen, you know, and yeah. You know, when only I step control back, really the effort of it. You don't control the right, Exactly. Exactly. And there's so many possibilities in the world. Like, right. Like we're all connected um, in, in one way or another, we're all connected. And it's just like, when right. you start putting that energy out there, like little dots start to connect themselves. Right. And I, I don't, I don't really know how it really, how it works, but <laughs> now I've had it happen with myself well, too. Where have just, you ever heard? Have you ever heard of a book called The Luck Factor? No, I, I'm going to write that down now. I think it's called The Luck Factor. I'll I'll double check. But uh, this well, author. You know, <laughs> no, speaking of the luck factor, it's I. It's funny because my husband and I we win stuff. We haven't won the lottery, but we win stuff all the time. Like you know, like at the 
elementary school you know, <laughs> fun fair or we like one oh we, so we you're were, those people that win we're those people that you know two years in a row we won one of the big baskets that like you know Love each it. classroom would put together a big uh basket like everybody would donate stuff yeah. and they'd have big you know and you buy raffle tickets to and two years in a row we won one of those which people were like i've been coming to this place for 15 years and i've never won it and you know my husband won a bike in the cafeteria of his business or of, of his old job one time i mean we, we win stuff all the time and both of us like say it's because we believe that it's possible for us to win. And other people say, I never win anything. And I'm like, yeah, you never win anything because you don't expect to win. Like I yeah. expect to win. I don't always win, but I have, I've won a lot of stuff. And it's- Well, that's this this luck factor book. Again, I think that's the name of it. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes and I'll make sure I send it to you. It, that's its premise mm-hmm. where you, if you, you know, a lot of life is luck. And if you want to make your own luck, that means you have to make your own opportunity. And if you want to make your own opportunity, that means you got to put the blue collar work in to do mm-hmm. what it takes to get lucky. And, yeah. you know, success is about, you know, opportunity and skills applied to that opportunity. And so if you're building your skill stack and you've got all these great skills and you're out there looking for opportunity, eventually they will coincide. I mean, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. It's And it's a yeah. probability yeah. game. It's nothing yeah. more than shots on goal. Uh, it, it, and this is one of the reasons that a lot of uh, <clears throat> folks that are trying to figure out how to take um, neighborhoods and underrepresented communities and raise them up, what they tend to do is throw a bunch of money at it, but they don't give them the opportunity or the skills mm-hmm. because it's about opportunity and skills and literally blue collar mm-hmm. work. And you yep. mentioned something about networking, which I'm very apprehensive about. Yeah, <laughs> the skill I have to learn, and I'm just—it would just be so. And I just don't. I'm not a fan, a big fan. But the reason I do this podcast is to practice networking. <laughs> so <clears throat> all the guests I have on, what I try to do, right? Of course, learn something. But I'm practicing the art of networking because <clears throat> I mean, we have a, basically an hour together to get to know each other through mm-hmm. a podcast, which we're going to publish and we both get some value out of it. It's a great conversation. We just, now we got, now we know each other, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's well, all under the guise of let's do a podcast, but it's really honestly me practicing. Networking. It is getting to know people. <laughs> well, yeah. And absolutely. that's the thing that I think is something I never could appreciate. And this, I haven't appreciated it until very recently, the real art and skill of, if you want those opportunities and you want to get lucky then you have to build your skills and you have to make your own opportunity by actually going out there and trying things like yeah. podcast or, you know, I'm trying to build some new tools for my business to help it scale. All these mm-hmm. things you like, take the meeting, you know, yeah. fill out the survey. You know, people always want yeah. to get into like media as an example. Uh-huh. And they're like, well, we'll just call up a bunch of reporters. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, not the way it works. You have to build rapport yeah. and a yeah, cadence. Exactly. And you have to kind of go through this learning curve of tier three, tier two, tier one media, mm-hmm. but you have to be a value. You have to build relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, don't understand. Well, so, it's funny, you know, when, when you were talking earlier about like the politics and how that frustrated you so much, um, I, when I'm talking to people about, I mean, politics is influence. That's, that's what it is. And, you know, a lot of times when I'm working with people, they'll say, I don't want to have anything to do with the politics. 
And I say, okay, I mean, you don't have to, but you must realize that politics is an influence. And that means that you are basically giving up on having influence within the organization. And, you know, I've actually talked to a couple people this past week about, you know, where they've recognized that they want to have more visibility and more influence in their organizations. And I'm like, well, start reaching out to people and just be like, hey, I'm interested in what you do. I'd like to learn more about it. Or, you know, if you're in a meeting with them and they say something cool, you know, uh, send them a note afterwards and say, I really enjoyed what you said about X. Can I get, you know, 15 minutes on your calendar to chat with you more about that? Right. And it always, it starts with knowing people and having them know you, but then um, it's also about understanding what other people's motivations are, you know, because like we both talked about, you know, coming into the workplace and um, just thinking like, well, I just have to show up and, you know, be here for eight hours a day and make the widgets, whatever it is. And that's, that's not what it's about. It really is about adding value. And it's also understanding like, what do other people need? Right? I, I've some of the worst mistakes that I've made in my career are when I assumed that I knew what other people wanted or needed. And they won't always tell you, but sometimes they will. And otherwise, you can observe them. And you can observe like, okay, when, when do they say yes? When do they say no? When do they say maybe, you know, when do, when are they quiet? You know, I, I think about, um, you know, one time, uh, when I was a new director of marketing at the last company I worked for, um, and I, I did marketing for this division that had co-heads, which is a nightmare, by the way, like a two headed (laughs) monster. Um, and I was in a meeting with, with the two you know, leaders of the division. And I proposed something. And one of the guys was like, really keen on it. He was just like, Oh, yeah, 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 this is great. This is great. Um, yeah, you should go ahead. Yes, yeah, start on that. Right. So I started on it. The other guy didn't say anything. Yeah. And um, I was like, well, he's sitting here. And you know, he must approve it also, because otherwise, he would have said something. Um, so I start on this. And I sent whatever the Thing was to both of them to review before I went to the next stage. And the one who didn't say anything ripped me a new one. He was like, I did not approve this. And I was like, oh, okay. Now I know how this game is played, right? That I cannot make an assumption that when he says nothing, that that's, you know, tacit approval, because there's some kind of weird dynamic going on between these two where he doesn't want to uh, you know, have any conflict with him in front of me or whatever. So I right. just learned. Right, right. I learned. Okay. right, right. Um, but, you know, these are the things and I can sit there and be like, well, that's stupid. And he should be able to do that and whatever. But the bottom line is that he was like four, four or five pay grades above me. So he can do whatever he wants. Right. I need his approval to do my job. And so I needed to, to, you know, flex exactly. and do something different exactly. so that I didn't get beat up, even though the other guy was like, yeah, this is great. But, you know, it was the two headed monster. I had to please both heads. Right, right. So, um, yeah, that's actually a really good, really good point. So, you know, what, what questions do you think the next generation of entrepreneurs should ask themselves as they start getting into this process? Like, what, what do you think they should kind of ask themselves on? Is this for me? Or, you know, from your coaching background, like what questions do you yeah. have 
the well, clients think, about their career? I, I think there's more than one question. Um, I mean, the first one is the one that I, I started with, you know, which was, uh, what do you like to do and what are you good at? And, you know, and then maybe the next question is, what's keeping you from doing that? You know, what is it that you're afraid of? Right. Those I think that those are the things those are the questions that if somebody is thinking about getting into um, running their own business, that's what they they need to ask themselves. Um, And, you know, one thing that I'll say is that you got to go for it. Right. Like reaching your goal is not going to be like a a nice, smooth, six lane superhighway. There's going to be some bumpy parts to the road and you really have to be committed to your vision but you know it can be extremely satisfying if you really believe in yourself and and you you know hold that vision of what it's going to look like when you get there wow i think that's a great great place to end terry thank you so much for your time you're welcome Thanks, Terry, for a fantastic interview. It was really wonderful to talk with you about how you've transitioned from, you know, executive into coach to help other executives. I really love your uh, whole attitude about um, success but not satisfaction. A lot of people have that. So uh, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Terry. Here are some questions to ask yourself when you're feeling stuck, contemplating a career move, or starting a new business. What do I like to do? What am I good at? What's keeping me from doing what I want to do? And what am I afraid of? And yes, these are simple questions, yet very powerful when you have the mindset of looking into yourself to see what's, you know, keeping you from doing what you want to do. And a lot of people that are transitioning from like a corporate job to being an entrepreneur, there's a huge amount of fear, fear and uncertainty and doubt or FUD as we like to say. So ask these questions, you know, take baby steps towards your goal, but always be trying to figure out what's in your way. Work on believing in possibility. If you believe something is possible, then it is. Now, this seems a little (laughs) woo-woo. And in, in some cases it is. But our mindsets around what we want to do have to start with what I'm about to try to accomplish is actually possible. You know, I'm never going to be a professional athlete, right? Okay, that's not a good goal. But if it's something like I want to start a business, I want to start a side hustle, you have to believe you can do it before you actually do it. And as long as it's realistic, yeah, she's right. I mean, you can pretty much do anything. Take a step back and look for the bigger picture. Open up to other options and more options will appear. So if you are like, oh, I could do something different or I could do it in a different way, you may not have that as the final result, but just that mindset shift is going to open you up to different possibilities. You just widen the aperture (laughs) of what you're taking in, right? So that's a very important thing to do. And I'm glad uh, Terry brought that up. So There you have it. Those are some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.